1 Corinthians 7, Paul continues to answer questions they wrote to him concerning issues of marriage. Today's sermon may feel a little like a bullion cube, pretty tight and dense. You may want to actually hear it one more time on uh, our audio, which comes out on Tuesday. There are a lot of issues here that people are very concerned about, and sometimes it's difficult to hear all the things that are being said. And with that, let's go to the prayer as we look to the reading of God's word. Father, we do ask that you would guide us this day by your word and spirit, that in your light we would see your truth and there find freedom. And in your will, we would discover your peace that you have for us through Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we now pray. Amen. Beginning in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. As we look at our text this morning, we do so aware that there has not been a consensus among Christians on how we are to view and understand divorce and remarriage. Good and careful Christians have differed, and we will be no different. It seems God's design is that we wrestle with this issue, so wrestle we shall. Our current climate is such that differences of any kind are immediately put into right and wrong categories or conservative versus liberal. It's a rigidity in thinking that takes very complicated issues and makes them all either this or that or black or white. And so you hear things spoken or the sentiment of, we take the Bible seriously and if you disagree with us, then you don't. And then you hear the labels. You're a liberal, progressive, conservative, fundamentalist, cotton-headed ninny-muggin. <laughs> Elf reference. But what happens then is that rigid thinking is polarizing, and it avoids serious wrestling with serious issues. And this is never just an academic exercise. The Bible deals with real people living real lives. I said last week when we looked at human sexuality, that is a force like nuclear power. Amazing fuel for intimacy when used well. A tremendous devastation and destruction in sin. And marriage is that God-given arena for that to be lived out. And for some, marriage then carries with it relational radiation burns. Living in a fallen world, what God has joined together has at times been broken by sinful people. Some to no fault of their own. 
Some have been the primary cause. Others, a mixture of sinful actions and reactions by both. What are we to do with this? How do we respond to that devastation that we live in? Well, because Jesus has reconciled the Father to us, we have been called to the hard work of reconciliation with one another. So as we begin, we first are going to look at some helpful background information on divorce and marriage in the Roman and Jewish culture. In the Roman and Greek world, marriage contracts often include what we refer to as material support, provisions of food, clothing, shelter. Failure to meet these could result in divorce. But by the, the first century, which Paul is writing, divorce became a very simple thing for them. A man or a woman could seek a divorce through official sanctions, but simply divorcing by separating was most commonly done. Either leaving a house or being dismissed from the house constituted a divorce, and either person could remarry. So the first century empire was home to no-fault divorce. For Jews of the first century, there had been an ongoing debate about divorce. And this debate is brought into the Gospels by the Pharisees asking Jesus about it. In Deuteronomy 24, the law allowed for divorce on grounds of an indecent thing. There it reads, when a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his home and she departs out of his house and goes further than that. So there were two schools of thought that were arguing over how to understand, to define this. One, Rabbi Hillel said that anything could be considered indecent. So functionally, a no-fault divorce. Rabbi Shammai said it had to be a very serious offense of unfaithfulness. This is the context for the question that Jesus has asked in Matthew 19. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? That's a technical term surrounding this. It's not just a generic question. They're asking Jesus, which side of the debate do you fall on? Whose side are you on? And Mark's gospel gives a a shortened form of this, can a man divorce his wife? But it's in the context of for any reason, because they all agreed that a person could get divorced. It was this particular question that was at stake. Most people sided with Hillel, the no-fault divorce. When Joseph found out that his betrothed Mary was pregnant, we read in Matthew 1, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It was this no-fault divorce that he was looking at, not the legal proceeding. That would have put her to shame to go to a legal proceeding. He was attempting to go the route that the people in his day were going until, in a dream, he was told not to do it. After divorce, remarriage was simply expected. A divorce certificate, either Jewish or Roman, specified that the person was free to remarry anyone they chose. Jesus answers this very specific question, but he doesn't say any more regarding other scriptures on divorce. He answers actually in line with Shammai. That indecency as being only a serious moral breach 
not a no fault. And he also sides with actually the Qumran community when he says that monogamy is what it's supposed to be. God has given a man and a woman for this reason, not polygamy. But he also goes a step farther than any of these groups by saying that these no-fault Hillel divorces were actually invalid. Because they were invalid, that's why he says a man causes his wife to commit adultery if she remarries, or he commits adultery if he does. Because the very grounds of which this no-fault divorce in their day was taking place is invalid. He was the only one saying that. Jesus doesn't speak to Exodus 21. That was also in the Jewish understanding of marriage. Exodus 21, verses 10 to 11. There, a slave who becomes a wife must be provided for in terms of material support, food, shelter, conjugal rights. If the man does not do this, she's free to divorce and remarry. There it reads in verse 10, it says, if the man takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish the first one's food, clothing, or marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out. Deuteronomy 24, unlike what the Pharisees are saying, is not a command to divorce. There is an allowance for divorce, for what's usually understood for sexual sin. Exodus 21 gives what is commonly understood as the obligations of marriage that are to be maintained. A refusal to this is also grounds for divorce. Jesus speaks to the first question of Deuteronomy 24, but he's silent on Exodus 21. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks to Exodus 21. We saw some of that last week. Now, if this is not understood, it seems like Paul is contradicting Jesus which he's not doing. So to sum it up, in the first century, both Gentiles and Jews had made divorce way too easy. And Paul now gives a pastoral response to broken relationships. So we take it up in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Just briefly, this is going to get covered in this chapter further. For those who are content with singleness, Paul thinks it's a greater benefit for being a missionary. More of that to follow. But... Verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, Paul here is giving what we've referred to as a floor ethic. Elsewhere, he speaks of the ceiling of the high and exalted nature of marriage. Here, he's talking the lower ethic. Some people are really uncomfortable with Paul's language here. Seems just too crass. Paul deals with real life with real people. Many of you are aware of Jim Elliott, famous missionary and martyr to the Aka Indians. He uh, was married to well-known Christian writer Elizabeth Elliott. In his journal, while he was engaged to Elizabeth and in the midst of his very busy missionary life, he writes this, 1953, June 13th. I am clean mad for a woman this afternoon. At times, a sheer physical need is the strongest argument for marriage that I know. Stronger than love or social adjustment or anything. Now, he obviously married Elizabeth for greater reasons than these, and he would speak about that in his journal. A recognition that this also is a part of humanity. And Paul simply says, if you cannot maintain self-control, it's better 
to Mary. Then he goes on. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's referring back to Jesus' teaching, Matthew 19. But God has joined together, therefore let not man separate. And he applies it here by saying the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, likely this is a very specific case they wrote to Paul about. Separate here means divorce. The ancient world did not have a category of still married but separated. That's a modern invention. You could separate by leaving or being dismissed. Both were divorced either way. And either spouse could remarry. So our modern idea of a permanent category of separation while still married is unbiblical. To live functionally as divorced but not be technically divorced is wrong. God's great judgment on Israel through the prophets was for Israel living this type of sham. They would keep up some of the outer provisions of the covenant, but their heart provisions were not. And the Lord accused them of spiritual adultery all the same. Now, Paul says something that's very remarkable. Just think about what he's saying here. Verse 11. Saying, if she does, if she divorces, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. He doesn't say, kick her or him out of the church until they get their act together. He doesn't say that. We kind of expect it. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I demand that these two Christians be reconciled because they both bear the name of Christ and Put them in a room together until they come out reconciled because we are not tolerating this. You'd almost think he would say that too. He doesn't. They ought not. But if it happens, he recognizes that not everything gets put back together in this life. Relationships can be destroyed. Most people divorce so that they could marry someone else in the ancient world. And Paul is cutting off this avenue. He's saying she should remain single, meaning giving every opportunity to be reconciled. Now, the hard part is, is is this permanent? What happens five or ten years from now? Presumably, one of them would remarry. Well, what then? It's a wrestling moment. And good Christians have answered this question differently. But it's one to wrestle with because it's not spoken of specifically. And then Paul goes on. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Whenever you have new converts in a first-generation Christian situation, this is a real scenario. We're told that believers are to marry other believers, but in case of conversion, after marriage, Paul's saying the marriage is still valid. Stay married if they consent. However, he does exclude missionary dating. So that's not a thing. You shouldn't be dating a non-Christian. By saying if two people get married and one of them converts, stay married. And he goes on to explain that, verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Again, Paul says something very remarkable here. In the Old Testament, uncleanness made holy things defiled. Here, Paul is saying just the opposite. The believing spouse is not defiled by the unbeliever. In fact, the unbeliever is now sanctified, set apart for holy purpose because of the believing spouse. 
No one would have thought that from a Jewish background. Now, this does not mean they're saved, regenerated. Saying the presence of the believing spouse causes the children and the unbelieving spouse to be within the realm of God's covenant. They are near where the Holy Spirit is at work in this believer. They have inside access to the gospel and all the benefits which flow from it through this believer who has a life of prayer, of worship, of commitment to the Lord. That affects and moves outward. And Paul is recognizing that. Saying, oh, stay, stay together if, they, if they're consenting. But then in verse 15, he acknowledges again the real world. But if the unbelieving partner separates, meaning divorced, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Being enslaved is a Jewish way of saying, they're, or not being enslaved is a Jewish way of saying they're free to remarry again. Jews spoke of marriage as being bound. A couple was bound in marriage. To be unbound was free to remarry. So Paul is giving this person permission if the unbeliever walks away. And then he gives a reason. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Meaning they will convert. Paul shows a, a realism in his counsel. If they're willing to stay, then, oh, by all means, stay with them. But if they go, there's nothing you can do about it. Very similar to Romans 12, 18. If that possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a real recognition that not everyone wants to live at peace with you. We may not be able to fix that. Several years ago, I had a, a young woman not from our church. She, she came to get counsel for me. Uh, I only married, married a couple years and they had moved away. And, they, and while she was in this other place, her husband of a couple years encouraged her to come back home to visit her folks. She did. She came back home to visit her folks and when she got here, he immediately started divorce proceedings where he was from. And she, in tears, looking at me, I don't want to be divorced had no idea there was even a problem in the marriage. He refused to talk about it. He wouldn't take a call for me or anyone else. And she was here, he was there, and she got divorced. And she said, I don't want to be divorced. I love my husband. I don't even know why he's upset with me. I don't know if she ever found out. He left. There's nothing she could do to fix it. How devastating that is. Paul understands this. Not everyone wants to live at peace with you. Later in verse 39, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, Paul speaks to what should be the normal operation of marriage there, but he has qualified that. So verse 39 is not an absolute statement because he says here a spouse is not bound if the other divorces him. He's speaking generally, but this sometimes that doesn't happen. No, also, there's not a category of divorce but still married in God's eyes. Legal divorce is divorce. It might be a sinful divorce, but the two are still divorced. If they get back together, it requires a remarriage. So a few things. Roman Catholics do not allow for divorce for any reason, adultery or otherwise. 
they do allow for an annulment. That means the marriage was never a real marriage to begin with. Functionally, it seems the same as the divorce for many. But that's within their system. The Orthodox Church allows for divorce to take place on biblical grounds. They also allow remarriage to take place for anyone who's been divorced, but require a season of repentance to be demonstrated. With Protestants, it's been mixed. Some think the Old Testament is no longer valid on its positions on marriage. So Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 24, other marriage passages on divorce don't hold any weight for them. Others work very hard at understanding the full biblical teaching on marriage. When Paul speaks of abandonment, he means one spouse has left the marriage. They're no longer giving material support and conjugal rights. A marriage covenant has been broken. Sometimes a divorce kills a marriage. Sometimes it's like a death certificate and it just acknowledges something is already dead. It requires wisdom to know the difference. It's difficult. And Jesus addressed one issue on divorce regarding a serious misuse of Scripture. Paul addresses some other concerns. Neither covered all the issues. Wrestling is required. And no doubt many will disagree with others on how that gets played out. For instance, neither mentioned attempted murder. Seems rather obvious that that's worse than adultery. But there are some who have told a spouse they had to go back to a spouse who tried to kill them. That's foolish. In our own refuge ministry for abused women, we clearly state that our first priority is the safety of the woman. There have been some who have objected to this, and they say, no, the marriage is the priority, even if safety cannot be maintained. Not making that up. I had that very conversation with the local minister. I disagree. Human safety comes first. To seek to destroy a person is to destroy the marriage covenant. And this kind of egregious harm can come through more ways than just physical ones. Heart work is always hard. It requires that I look at my sin first and foremost and not others. To be sure. Most problems in marriage are the garden variety ones of two sinners struggling to get along. Two people can be absolutely awful to one another. And Christians are called to believe the good news of Jesus by living it out. And it always starts again with your own heart first. I repent. I seek forgiveness. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven me. And your marriage is going to be the place where you will live out the gospel. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. His relationship is absolute. Ours mirrors that, but not in the same absolute way. I I say this at the end of wedding messages I give. Many of you have heard this. I, I, I look at either one of them and I say, one day, a day that the Father has appointed, you will stand before him to give each other back to his son. And he expects that you will hand them back to him more beautiful and Christ-like than when he gave them to you this day. That's, that's the intent of marriage. And yet, with that, we serve a God of resurrection. What has been dead can have new life breathed into it. 
And any married person can attest to the gratitude they have for God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Sometimes, though, that means a new start with another. No one enters marriage thinking it's going to disintegrate. Yet it happens. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is okay walking among our ruins. He does so to rescue, to restore, to revitalize. He can breathe new life into our pain and our anguish. He removes our shame. He cleanses us from our sin. He can renew our resolve for for greater love on our part. He's present with us in the wrestling. And we acknowledge that. We, We know we live in a world marred by sin and destruction. But we participate in that. And at the same time, we are called to uphold the Lord's beautiful picture of marriage. Sometimes it's shattered beyond ability to repair in this life. Scripture recognizes that. Sometimes what you think is dead can have new life brought to it. Scripture recognizes that. And we live with all the variables in between. It's difficult and it's hard. But we do so wanting to bring glory and honor to the Lord with whatever situation we find ourselves in. Like like this young girl who's like, I don't want to be divorced. Okay. As far as is possible with you, be at peace. But he doesn't want peace. You're going to have to learn to walk forward glorifying God with a broken marriage that you didn't want. For some, it's I've contributed and been the leading participant in destroying this you're going to walk forward knowing that God can forgive you and cleanse you in Christ. And that this doesn't have to be the thing that marks you for the rest of your life. And many others recognizing we've participated in our own downfall. The same Jesus, the same gospel. Setting us free from our sin, acknowledging the high call of marriage at the same time. All of those are reality for us. And this is what we get to live out as God's people, as the church here in this place. Living together, walking together, encouraging one another in our faith, in our marriages, in our life. Standing side by side, bearing burdens, and understanding the difficulty, the enormity in front of us. All while the beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace is present to us. In his son, Jesus. In his name, let us pray. Father, we indeed are grateful that you give to us such a beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church, his bride. We are that bride. And Father, you promise that one day we will be without spot, we will be without wrinkle. And Lord, we hold that by faith because it just doesn't seem possible at times. But Lord, you can do this. And so we ask that that you would do this for us, that you indeed would cleanse us, that you would restore us. And Father, we pray this too for marriages. We pray, Father, that you would encourage, Lord, that you would rebuild where necessary, that you would restore and revitalize. And Lord, I know some have started over, and I pray, Father, your blessing upon them. We pray, Father, that together that we would be able to be the body of Christ as you have called us to be, reflecting your love, 
your mercy, your goodness, your truth, your holiness. And this we would ask through Christ, our great Redeemer.